Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is Grant Haver, producer of Deep State Radio. And today, I wanted to share with you one of the other podcasts on the DSR network, Next in Foreign Policy. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk with a foreign policy and national security expert under 40 about the biggest issues of today and tomorrow. I wanted to share this recent episode we had with Katie Howland about unidentified aerial phenomena, better known as UFOs, because this week the House held its first public hearing on the issue in more than 50 years. I hope you enjoy it and subscribe to the show. Also, if you're a member in this weekend's DSR Daily Bonus Brief, we caught back up with Katie to have her break down the hearing and tell us what comes next. So become a member today to get even more analysis. Now, on with the show. I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Katie Howland, who is the Monitoring and Evaluation Manager at the Free Wheelchair Mission. But today, we're talking to her about her other focus, which is on UAP transparency. Katie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, be on the podcast. To start off, what are UAPs and how did you get interested in them? UAP are Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, which is kind of the rebrand of the classic UFO. And um, as you mentioned earlier, I do not work on this topic in my day job. I'm a humanitarian aid worker. But I actually came across the topic while volunteering on the Biden campaign. A small group of some younger campaign volunteer staff got the opportunity to speak with John Podesta, who was, you know, a former White House chief of staff. Um, And he's a very outspoken advocate about the UAP topic. And he recommended that we pick up a book by Leslie Keene called UFOs, believe it's pilots, generals and government officials go on the record. And it was kind of my first introduction to the topic in a way that I felt was consistent with science and utilized credible witnesses and whatnot. And as someone who used to work as a contractor with the military a long, long time ago, I was very interested in the experiences that our military aviators were having. So before we go too much further, you mentioned that UAPs are sort of the rebrand of UFOs. What is behind that nomenclature switch? Like, when did we stop calling them UFOs? Why? Is there a political valence to it? That's a great question. So the rebrand is relatively new. About five years ago, this topic kind of came back into public the public sphere, which I'll go into a little bit later why that happened. But really, it was to reflect the fact that when you think of UFO, you automatically think little green men, right? When in reality, that's not what UFO means. It means that it's something in our atmosphere that we can't identify, right? We've exhausted all of the other potential explanations based on the data that we have. And so UAP was simply an effort to begin discussions in a way that didn't automatically lead people to one conclusion or another. 
And I think that's a very important aspect of this is recognizing that when we do talk about UAP, we are not making any assumptions about what UAP are, simply that we don't know and that it's worth exploring. Can you give us the full spectrum of like, what are the most boring explanations for UAPs that are out there? And then what are the most maybe controversial explanations for UAPs? Sure. So, well, by definition, if we have an explanation, it isn't a UAP, right? But, you know, some of the things that, but, (laughs) but some of the things that people look for, right, is can it be explained by a drone? Can it be explained by um, a commercial flight? Can it be explained by, you know, some sort of atmospheric phenomenon, ball lightning, you know, things like that? Obviously, as you get into some of the more exciting (laughs) possibilities, you have, you know, non-human intelligence, interdimensional craft, you know, all sorts of things. But we, we don't, the bottom line is we don't know, right? So I think what's really important is looking at what these craft typically feature. And one of the previous programs that was funded run out of the Pentagon kind of came up with five characteristics. They call them the five observables. And these are what these craft typically exemplify. And the first is anti-gravity, which really means there's no visible lift or propulsion systems, right? The craft sometimes can be going at incredible speeds, stop midair, make a 180 degree turn, which would cause insane amount of G-forces that, you know, human inhabitants simply could not survive. The second observable is that instantaneous acceleration, like I said, up to a thousand Gs. The third is hypersonic velocity. And so what that means is speeds above Mach 5 or five times the speed of sound. That's typically about 3,700 miles per hour. And it's important, I'm going to stop here for a second, because it's important when we talk about hypersonic velocity to compare it to what we know we have, right? 3,700 miles per hour sounds fast, but what we're actually seeing are in these craft are anywhere from eight to 12,000 miles per hour. And to put that in kind of to context, our fastest unclassified jet right now is the SR-71 Blackbird. And that goes 2,200 miles per hour. We do have drones that have gone up to 13,000 miles per hour, but those were rocket launched and only achieved that velocity for a few seconds. So really, we're talking about things that are not just slightly faster than our fastest unclassified aircraft, but four or five times faster. And then last but not least, we have low observability. So no heat signatures, no sonic booms observed, things like that and transmedium travel. So a lot of times these craft are not just observed in the sky. Sometimes they're observed coming out of the water and then flying through the sky or coming down from space and into the atmosphere. That's kind of what we're looking at when we're looking at UAP that are still unidentified. Why did this come back into the zeitgeist recently? It just feels like there's a lot of buzz right now around UAPs. Where did this come from? There is. So to talk about that, we really have to go back to the early 2000s. Starting in about 2007, um, the late Senator Harry Reid and a number of other senators were able to secure about $22 million in funding to run a special access program through the Defense Intelligence Agency. 
This program is called OSAP, the Advanced Aerospace Weapon Systems Applications Program. And it was awarded to Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies. So they basically had a program that looked at a wide variety of phenomena, one of them being UAP. And after five years of being funded, lost its funding for a number of bureaucratic reasons and transitioned into the more commonly known program, which was ATIP. The Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, and it was run by Lou Elizondo out of the Pentagon under the under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence. And this time it didn't have funding. It lost its funding due to some inner Pentagon politics, but it involved a lot of collaboration between the Navy and the CIA and whatnot on trying to identify what these craft were. The reason we're kind of talking about it now is in 2017, Lou Elizondo, the head of that program, resigned in protest and went public in the New York Times with his position and the fact that this program existed. So, and the reason he did that was at the time in 2014 and 2015, we were seeing daily incursions around the USS Theodore Roosevelt and its aviators off the Atlantic coast, daily incursions by unknown aerial phenomena into our protected US military airspace. And this resulted in at least one near midair collision. It was so common that there were signs up on the base warning of safety hazards due to these phenomena. Yet Lou, in his position, was unable to get a briefing with Secretary Mattis. And the reason was because some of his political appointees didn't want the subject to taint him. Right. So Lou decided to resign and leak. Well, not leak. That's the wrong word because they were actually approved for public release to share some videos with the New York Times. You may have seen some of these videos. One of them is the gimbal video, which was off the Atlantic. There was another one off the coast of San Diego called the Tic Tac. There's a few of them. And it really kind of got the conversation going in a new way because it was the first time since Project Blue Book in the 50s, you know, 60s, that the U.S. government admitted it had a program dedicated to researching UAP. One of the things that was interesting when I was researching this was how the government sort of was trying to cover this up. So what was the Robertson panel and what impact has it had on studying UAPs and the larger discourse around UAPs? I have to say, I love that you asked this question because it's the first thing that I want to explain to folks because, you know, rational minded people will go, if this is serious, why hasn't why has it been not taken seriously for the past seventy years? And that actually can tie back to this panel. It was in nineteen fifty three, and it was a CIA review of Project Blue Book, which was the U.S. Air Force's look into UAP, which declassified records have showed was more of a public relations effort, honestly. But what this panel determined, and this is all declassified info, you can look it up on your own if you would like, is that UAP posed a national security risk in that, at that time, there were so many sightings that the government was concerned that if 
the Russians posed an aerial invasion of the U.S., it would go unnoticed because it might be interpreted as a UFO flap. And so in order to avoid that, the Robertson's panel recommended a mass debunking campaign. And they specifically said they wanted to use mass media, motion pictures, and news articles to basically flood the airwaves with all of the times that you could explain a potential UFO sighting and to kind of make fun of it, right? To fund some cartoons and whatnot that would kind of make people giggle at silly green men. They also at the time recommended infiltrating civilian UFO groups, which prevented a lot of early scientific study of the topic in a serious way. And it's had a lasting impact. You know, and that's one of the reasons I actually started talking about this is because when I first started researching and reading into it, I was blown away by how often this is happening in our protected airspace near nuclear facilities and the fact that no one's talking about it. And I went to a group of, you know, some of my colleagues and peers who work in the foreign affairs space. And anytime I shared an article or data, it was just a little giggle and an emoji. You know, and these are folks who would rather read a CRS report than go to the movies, but no one would take it seriously. And it really harkens back to this fact that the Robertson's panel and their recommendations, they did a really good job, right? It, it, the stigma has lasted until this day. But, you know, the bottom line is if we ignore science and data because of stigma, we're not really doing our job as national security professionals. So the Robertson panel was was sort of emerged out of the intelligence community. It seems like today a lot of the work on UAPs is sort of centered at the DOD, correct me if that's wrong. And I'm curious if you think that having the center of gravity on these issues be within defense and intelligence is the proper placement for them. I would imagine that one of the side effects is that a lot of the work that is done is ultimately classified. And I wonder if, from your perspective, it would be better off if some other part of the U.S. government, maybe a sort of science and research focus arm, was really the one that's sort of in the driver's seat when it comes to doing cutting-edge work on UAPs? Or, or does it have to be within the DOD? Like, is that, is that a necessary component of being able to do work on this? You know, that's a fantastic question. And I think you're hitting at kind of two areas. The first is that where it's housed. And then the second is also overclassification. And I want to touch on both. So the first, it has been one of the biggest challenges. And I think one of the reasons we are just now having this come out, right, instead of in the 60s or 70s or 80s or 90s, when supposedly programs like this may have run in different components of DOD or the IC is because of how segmented and cautious those various branches or agencies are in losing their their territory, right? I used to work for a joint uh, Navy-Army program, and I can tell you that was much less sexy than UAP-focused, and it was challenging, right? Like the navigating the different branches alone, and I imagine it's a very similar situation with this. One of the really nice things is that there was recent legislation put in the 2022 NDAA that um, established a new office in the Pentagon. And one of the things they said was that this could be either established under the Office of the Secretary of Defense, 
or it could be established in a joint mechanism between the Secretary of Defense and the DNI. Unfortunately, the Pentagon had already tried to sidestep this process and created their own office, which is the AOIMSG. I don't even remember what it stands for. Something about synchronization group. It honestly, I think, was created to be hard to pronounce. So that was already housed within the office of the secretary. Luckily, though, the legislation did get passed. And so that office is being forced to kind of reckon with that legislation. And it does require a centralization of reporting and data collection and analysis. So I think I think it'll be easier in the past than it has been to collaborate. But, you know, one look at the most recent analysis report that was given to Congress shows that 144 incidents were analyzed by the UAP task force, which was kind of this interim effort as a result of a request from Marco Rubio in the last Authorizations Act. The majority of them came from the Navy, you know, and some keen observers have remarked that it didn't appear to be that any of those cases were brought, or very few of them were brought by the U.S. Air Force who obviously has some superior sensor systems to the Navy when it comes to analyzing aerial phenomena. So I think there are still going to be challenges, even though we have this legislation mandating information sharing. I'm cautiously optimistic, but one of the things that the original legislation was going to have kind of spoke to your point and that it was supposed to include a scientific arm that was outside of the government. And the proposed arm was the Galileo Project, which is housed at Harvard and has an incredible variety of scientists from all disciplines. And I think that would have been really useful. Unfortunately, that was cut. And so we will have folks in the new Pentagon office who look at biological effects, which is great. But I think your point is salient, right? I think it would be great to have some scientists who are not necessarily looking at this from a national security lens. I know I'm rambling, so I'll just say one more thing about the overclassification. It is an unfortunate side effect of where it's housed that these issues are classified. And a really good example of this is that the three uh, videos that have since become somewhat famous that were released were unclassified and were cleared for public release. They are now trying to classify those videos. And unfortunately, it doesn't quite make sense why. Because, you know, if you look at classification, our two main reasons are to protect sources and methods, right? And what you have, and that's why sometimes even if you have a sighting of a UAP, it's not that the sighting of the UAP itself itself is classified. It's that we don't want to share the sensor equipment we have or where we were operating or things like that. So now what you have is you have pilots who, you know, are maybe on an aircraft carrier on a routine mission you know, there's nothing secret about where they are filming something on their iPhones, right? So the sensor isn't classified and they're unable to publicize that. And that should not, in my opinion, be classified. Um, there's a lot of folks who are talking about the fact that that is an abuse of classification. And I think, unfortunately, that's a side effect of where these investigations are occurring. Of the arguments that are out there, it's China or Russia, or it's some type of 
alien type thing. (laughs) It seems like no one else has the capabilities to do this. So what do you think many of these things are? And then secondarily, if it is a great power competitor, what are they doing with this massive advantage? Right. You know, and I think that's a really great point. Um, I will not say what I think it is because frankly, I don't know. Um, No, but this is important, right? Like no one knows. If anyone tells you they know, they're lying, right? I can tell you what I don't think it is based on the available evidence. I find, well, the U.S. government finds it implausible that it is a foreign adversary. This much is said in the unclassified UAP task force report that was released to Congress in June. The reason why I think this is plausible, if you don't just take the government line uh, at face value, is a number of reasons. First of all, let's look at Russia. If Russia had this incredible technology with, let's say, drones or pilots that could fly 10,000 miles per hour and make right angle turns on a dime, I think Ukraine would be going a lot differently. I don't think it's a reasonable assumption to think they would keep that technology on the sidelines. China, you know, one of the arguments I've seen against it being China is that a lot of this technology people don't realize isn't new. The Tic Tac, for example, which is the object that was seen off the coast of San Diego, which was swarming Navy ships, has been described as far back as the 50s. Now, it wasn't described as a Tic Tac then. It was described as a white uh, fruit lozenge or uh, something else like that. But, you know, I I think it's one thing to look at all of these in the lens of 2022. It's another to look at them 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, You know, and I find it hard to believe that China was manufacturing these incredible aircraft while they were going through a famine in the 80s. And, you know, why haven't we seen this in the commercial sector or things like that? So I find those arguments just very, very implausible. Um, The next argument is, okay, well, is it a special access program, perhaps something out of Lockheed Skunk Works, you know, technology that we haven't released yet? And I will say that I think a number of UAP, generally speaking, could be this. We all know that technology is tested for years before it's deployed, before we see it. You know, we've seen that with a number of new aircraft and drones and things like that, right? Where I think it's important we look at this more closely is in the actual specs of these aircraft that we know are being produced. Right now, at Lockheed Skunk Works, they're producing the SR-72. This is going to be, according to unclassified you know, reports, the fastest aircraft ever in production. It's supposed to go 4,600 miles per hour, and it won't be in the skies at minimum until the 2030s. So you're telling me that we have something in production right now, not even in the air, that's going 4,600 miles per hour, yet things going twice that fast are somehow already in the air from another black program. I just, I don't find that logical, you know? And so I think you have to take a step back. Again, if drones are in the equation, that to me is the most plausible explanation for some of these. But the fastest drone I know of from unclassified sources went 13,000 miles per hour for six seconds. 
and it was rocket launched, you know, and all of these craft that we're seeing have no heat signatures, have no sonic booms. And I just find it incredibly difficult to look at all of the data and be able to clearly say, oh, it's clearly US tech or it's clearly Russian tech or this or that. I will tell you this, if the US has technology that allows us to go from the sea to the air, to go 10,000 miles per hour without creating a sonic boom, to have someone inside withstand 200 Gs, I'm pretty pissed off that we're wasting money on some other (laughs) acquisitions, you know? And so I think that we have to think about the fact that regardless of what the answer is, okay, let's say that it is miraculously US black tech, or it is an adversary, or it is something else, right? This other category that people like to talk about. No matter what, it's a big deal, right? So why aren't we talking about it? So how would you sum up the goal of the UAP transparency movement? Is it to to have more disclosures on the work that's being done from government? Is it to have sort of open public forums to talk about these things? Like what, I guess very concretely, like what, what are some of the, the items on the agenda for the movement itself? Absolutely. So I think first off, it's important to recognize that we've already had disclosure. In 2017, you know, we had this this article and later on the Pentagon confirmed this program existed. You know, it investigated UAP. We don't know what they are, but these programs exist. This is something we're funding. We have senators and congressmen from both parties who have signaled that this is a legislative priority. We have NASA Administrator Bill Nelson, who's commented on it. DNI Avril Haines has commented on it. If you're waiting for someone to come out and say UAP exists, they already have. And if you haven't seen that, you simply aren't paying attention. So then the next focus after disclosure is transparency, like you said. I think the new office in the Pentagon is going to be a big step forward in this. While not everything will be unclassified, it is required to have a yearly unclassified report delivered. The first one's due October 31st. So, you know, advocates are really looking forward to that. And it's going to look at some really interesting things in addition to looking at, you know, kind of the nuts and bolts that we've talked about extensively here. It's also going to look at things like physiological effects, because what we've seen is that people who come into close contact oftentimes have essentially radiation poisoning. And so there's been very little research done on that, at least in an unclassified reporting setting. We're hopeful that there'll be unclassified briefings. The legislation only requires classified briefings every 180 days. But I think it's just going to take some continued advocacy to Capitol Hill to kind of make sure that this topic doesn't get pushed aside. Speaking of Capitol Hill, have UAPs been a partisan issue so far? And do you think they're likely to become a partisan issue? Uh, We actually see the exact opposite. Which is why I think it's so sad that we're not talking more about this. You know, in probably the most polarized time in our country's history, we have a topic that both sides are collaborating on, and it is UAP. The NDAA legislation was put forward primarily by Senator Rubio and Senator Gillibrand, and then also on the House side by uh, Rep. Burchette and Rep. Gallego. Gallego? I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing. I'm not sure which is correct. 
So, you know, we're seeing on the right and left that this is a very important issue. You know, no one wants to be seen as letting down our service members. And this is an aviation safety issue. You know, if nothing else, if you don't believe, you know, some of the more funny theories out there, you know, the bottom line is this is affecting military aviators. And it's an important issue, not to mention the fact that there apparently are a number of members of Congress who've had experiences themselves. You know, this is a pretty common thing. Unfortunately, the stigma prevents us from talking about it quite openly. But you'd be surprised as you as you talk more to folks um, how often you hear stories. With this movement for transparency, with Congress getting involved, if it were a black ops type thing, what would you expect to see in the unclassified reports? You know, would you expect in the next five years that Congress kind of takes their hands off slowly? Like, what would that actually look like to kind of not prove, but kind of put more justification behind that theory? That's a great question. And I think we already would have seen something, right? I think the fact that Congress received the unclassified briefing in June, right? And then subsequently received the classified version of this report. And folks like Marco Rubio, who sit on the Senate Intelligence Committee, who have oversight powers over some of these special access programs, still said, we need an office to look into this and we need to find funding for it. To me, I think that says a lot. And, you know, a lot of folks were kind of disappointed, I guess, by the the unclassified report because it didn't flat out say, we know what it is and it's X, Y, Z. But I think what you have to look into is what actions did Congress take after that? And they were people who would be in the know, you know, and I think that says a lot. So what I think you will see is if it is, you know, the case that some of these are black tech, that wouldn't be surprising, right? That's going to be some of them, of course, but it certainly wouldn't be all of them. And if it was, I think it would represent a humongous intelligence failure because you have these reports that supposedly have been cross-checked with the intelligence communities and information has been shared. And if what you're saying is that there are these programs and information isn't being shared with the people who have the legislative authority for oversight, I think that's a whole issue in and of itself. If it is something that is not of this world, let's, you know, (laughs) put like a big asterisk about what that could be. Right. What do we do with that? Like, like it just sort of seems like, ah, we know it's something weird. And like, what am I supposed to do with this? That's the question, isn't it? I don't have an answer for you. But the bottom line is we have to start talking about it. And if we can't start from the basis of discussing what the facts are, how will we ever get to that point? I think that's kind of the key point of this discussion, you know, and there's a lot of implications for regardless of whether it's U.S. black tech or foreign adversary or something out of this world. You know, this doesn't just impact national defense, right? I also care deeply about climate change. If you're telling me we have technology that can have no visible means of propulsion, what does that mean for transportation and carbon use and things like that? You know, what does it mean that we have these biological effects that we might have to contend with? There are a lot of questions that this is going to raise, um, regardless of the source of the technology. And 
the bottom line is we can't keep putting our heads in the sand. So that's one of the reasons I'm so grateful to both of you for letting me on to chat about this topic, because we need groups of people who are smarter than me to discuss what the next steps are. What's the right entry point for people who are new to this topic and you know, maybe didn't take it seriously, but after listening to this conversation are more interested in taking it seriously? What would you recommend or where would you recommend that folks start? First off, I would recommend staying off Twitter, which I think is just good advice, genuinely, generally speaking. I would recommend the same entry point I had, which was a book by Leslie Keene called UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. Leslie Keene is an investigative reporter with, you know, who's cut her chops doing reporting for the New York Times and other incredible outlets. And she is very conscientious to only use the most credible cases, to not jump to conclusions, to really use just a fact-based approach. And I think that's where this has to come from. I would also encourage folks not to get too concerned about the folks who are talking about more outlandish things. Take the, the, the credible sources for what they're worth and move from there and build on that. Because we have 70 years of conspiracy theories to unravel. And I think it's important that you don't automatically assume just because you find UAP to be credible now that that means you have to agree with everything that's been said over the past 70 years. But it's definitely a broad field. And once you dive in, it will hook you. So I'm going to warn you in advance. What does the future look like five years from now, 10 years from now? What are your sort of baseline expectations? And then what are your your hopes for, you know, if we had this conversation again in 10 years? My expectation is that over the next five years, we'll really see an increase in information sharing within the DOD and intelligence communities, less territorial actions. You know, that's always a a tough thing to hope for when you're getting the Pentagon involved, but one can be optimistic. And, you know, we're going to have a lot more data coming out, right? Because we have these yearly reports that are going to come out to Congress about what that office is doing. I hope that it's not too overclassified, that we can actually make meaningful, meaningful leaps forward for the public who don't have access to that classified information. I'm also really interested. I'm an epidemiologist by by education, by training. So I'm really uh, interested in the biological effects. Uh, One of the recently FOIA docs that came out was a defense intelligence reference document, which was one of 38 reports produced by OSAP, that kind of first earlier phase DIA program. And it specifically looked at anomalous acute effects on human tissue. And it was peer-reviewed data, hundreds of instances that showed that folks had burns, hair loss, heart palpitations, even malignancies after encounters with UAP. And I think that's going to be really important going forward because anytime you're dealing with a a new technology, I think you have to be very mindful, especially if you don't know what that technology is or how it works, that you don't stick your hand into a meat grinder. So that's my my big my big focus right now. But yeah, I hope that really what I hope to see is more folks getting interested, more folks being willing to dive into the data and to have conversations that is actually based on that data and not just based on their need for uh, psychological closure, <laughs> which is a hard thing to do, right? Um, this challenges a lot of our assumptions about uh, our government, 
about our culture, about our technology, and it's not always comfortable. Is the private sector interested at all? Like, are there startups or companies that have gotten on the UAP train? You know, there's a number of, I would say, like research organizations, um, probably most relevant at this point. The Galileo Project at Harvard, like I mentioned, is one of them. To the Stars Academy is actually what catapulted the New York Times article initially. Kind of a funny one because it was founded by Blink-182 member Tom DeLong. Some of the folks have since left that, but it was, you know, it housed Lou Elizondo, who was the head of ATIP, uh, Christopher Mellon, who was a former Deputy Ass- Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, Jim Simivan, who was a former CIA officer, former guy from Blocking Skunk Works. So, you know, they had some, some intellectual weight there, too. There's also kind of new think tanks starting to emerge. There's one called Skyfort out of San Diego. So, you know, I think we're going to see a kind of a proliferation of folks who are interested in this going forward. It's been happening slowly over the five years since I would say disclosure kind of kickstarted. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see more again. I also think there are going to be a lot of new folks in DOD contractor companies who are going to be working on this type of issue just by the definition of having this office in the Pentagon, right? So with that, let's move on to our final segment where we each bring something to the table that we've been following in the news, either culturally or politically. Katie, why don't you kick us off? I'm an LGBTQ person. So obviously, I've been following a lot of the legislation that's been coming out in terms of legislation targeting transgender um, individuals or the don't say gay bills. And I gotta be honest, it's been a really hard time to be queer. There's been a lot of vitriol renewed, I think, in the mainstream media, Uh, not all aspects of the mainstream media, obviously. But you know, narratives around uh, LGBTQ folks being predators and pedophiles, again, is kind of rearing its ugly head. And I, you know, I tend to think that this is because it's going to be a midterm issue. I think, unfortunately, one side of the aisle is trying to weaponize it again. But it's something that I think we all need to stay on top of because laws are being passed left and right. And if we take the, you know, our foot off the gas on this one, I think it's going to get very ugly very quickly. Really important to follow. Zoe, what are you following this week? I wanted to draw everybody's attention to an article that was published just a couple of days ago in the New York Times about the sort of lasting impacts and post-traumatic stress that has resulted for many folks in the military who are drone operators and the ways in which it's sometimes hard to, to identify some of that trauma because we assume that when people are many, many miles from a battlefield, they're not experiencing combat in the same way as people on the ground. But there's growing evidence and individual stories that suggest that being a drone operator can be really, really challenging for service members. And I just thought that the piece that was published this weekend was was a really powerful example of, of, of that story and trying to dig under the surface a little bit and would recommend that, that folks take a look at it. On a slightly lighter note, this week, I want to plug another podcast. It's called Friends at the Table, and they just wrapped up their seventh season called San Fiel. 
They're a tabletop RPG podcast that's been doing games and settings from traditional fantasy and sci-fi to Weird West and a reimagined Atlantic City. Their podcast has been going on since 2014, and they have over 500 hours of funny, sincere, and thoughtful collaborative storytelling. Uh, I've been binging it since earlier this year and can't wait for the new season to come out. So I'd highly recommend it if you are interested in collaborative storytelling and fiction podcasts. So with that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Katie at Katie S. Howland. If you are a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in our show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by Luxury Apartments in DC's Navy Yard, now leasing a lightly used three-bedroom apartment that comes pre-furnished with military surplus and ties to foreign intelligence agencies. As always, Secret Service agents live rent-free. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy. Foreign Policy